Um, just this week, I opened my Facebook page and I was met by some beautiful scenery from Turkey uh, from my cousin's uh, recent holiday there. We're surrounded by images of the good life. It seems to be there for the taking, just within our grasp. Uh, but I'm sure that you'll also agree with me this morning that while we have more opportunities today, uh, more goods and more services to meet all our desires, we still strangely somehow seem perpetually unsatisfied or not fully satisfied at the same time. Uh, many of you will know um, Mick Jagger's famous words already 15, uh, 50 years ago. Uh, I can't get no satisfaction. That was his sad experience. I can't get no satisfaction. <laughs> and has anything changed uh, in the last 50 years? It really, I don't really think so. Uh, you know, a couple of times over the last few weeks as I've been driving my car, I've turned on the radio, and I've heard um, the this, this song a few times being played. One of, by, I had to actually look it up. One of South Africa's most famous um, and most successful uh, rap artists. Uh, he was tragically actually gunned down earlier this year in Durban. But you know, perhaps even more tragic than that was that despite having all uh, the wealth in the world, he was still desperately unsatisfied. You know, the, the rather inane and re repetitive lyrics in the song simply go like this. Uh, one girl, not enough for me. Two girls, not enough for me. Three girls, not enough for me. Not enough for me. Not enough for me. Not enough. Um, as human beings, we seem to have this insatiable desire for more. You know, our whole economic uh, system seems to be driven by this. You know, our economic theory simply assumes this. Um, Dieter can maybe add a little bit more nuance. He teaches uh, economics here at the university. I don't know if he's here this morning. But, you know, economics, they tell us in Economics 101, is the study of how to use limited and scarce resources to meet unlimited human wants. Is that true? Unlimited human wants. Uh, what does the Tenth Commandment have to say into this context, where our whole economic system and all our media seems to be designed and geared to encourage us to want ever more, uh, to keep up with the Joneses or to keep up with the Cardassians, whatever the case may be? Let's hear the words of the Tenth uh, Commandment again. Exodus 20 verse 17, just a single verse our reading this morning. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servants, his ox or donkey, or anything uh, that belongs to your neighbor. And the way I want us to look at it this morning is the way we've actually very helpfully looked at many of the other commandments. Firstly asking, what does this commandment prohibit? And then secondly, asking implicitly, what does this commandment then affirm? And then finally asking, how can we, in light of the whole Bible story, actually keep uh, this commandment today? Let's firstly think about this. What does this commandment against coveting prohibit? And you know, firstly, I think we need to be very clear on what this commandment is not uh, prohibiting. Uh, in a very famous article um, some years back in Vanity Fair, uh, Christopher Hitchens, I don't know if you've come across him before, one of the most prominent voices of the new atheists, uh, he wrote an article called The New Commandments, um, arguing that we need to bring the Ten Commandments up to date uh, with modern ethical theory. And, you know, when he came to the Tenth Commandment, he said, you know, uh, how foolish this commandment is. You know, how could you ever enforce this? How could you ever enforce, you know, I saw you coveting uh, my field. Wise legislators don't say that, um, he said in this article. But he also asked in this article, he said, 
why is it wicked to be ambitious and acquisitive? Why is that wicked? But you know, with all due respect, I think he was actually misunderstanding uh, what this commandment is really prohibiting, what it's really saying. It's actually not saying that it's wrong to be ambitious or, or that it's wrong to, to desire good things. You know, this, the Hebrew word here for desire, chamad, is actually a neutral word. It can actually be used for desiring good things. A God's word is to be desired. It's to be coveted more than gold, more than pure gold. Uh, the psalmist says in Psalm 19, it's the same Hebrew word. You know, much Eastern philosophy and um, Buddhism in particular says that you know, the real source of the problems in our world is actually desire in general. It's, it's attachment uh, that then becomes fear of losing those good things. That's the real problem with the world. But you know, the Bible is more nuanced than that. The problem is not simply desire in general. Uh, there are many good things we should desire. Uh, the problem rather, uh, as St. Augustine famously put it long ago, is disordered desire, inordinate desire is the real problem. And you know, our disordered desire is particularly revealed according to this commandment, by desiring what rightfully belongs to our neighbor. I wonder if you noticed here in Exodus um, 20:17 how that word neighbor is repeated uh, three times. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And finally, you shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. You know, it's not saying you shouldn't desire a home or a wife, it's specifically setting your heart on your neighbor's home, your neighbor's wife, uh, what belongs to your neighbor. What's forbidden here is a type of inordinate desire that cares more about my own fulfillment and my own satisfaction than my neighbor's good. So that if I had the opportunity, I wouldn't hesitate to take what belongs to my neighbor uh, for myself. And you know, if I don't have the opportunity or the power to take it from them, as in reality, I often don't, and there are consequences, well, then my, my coveting takes the form of envy, a resenting them for having it and me not. You know, in its worst form, actually hoping that that source of happiness will be taken away from them. You know, one of the best ways to understand what this commandment is prohibiting is to actually look at the examples in the Bible, the archetypal examples of coveting. Uh, perhaps the earliest example is, of course, Cain. I wonder if you remember the story of Cain and Abel. He resented God's blessing uh, on Abel's life. Why are things going so, so well with Abel? He's done nothing to deserve that until one day he could just take that uh, resentment um, and that blessing on his brother. He couldn't take it anymore. And he said to his brother, let's go out into the field. And there, when he thought that no one was, was watching, uh, he murdered his brother in cold blood. But you know, perhaps the most famous example of all was King David, a man who had it all, you know, wealth, and power, privilege. And yet one day there was one thing he didn't have. From his palace top, I think we all know the story, he saw uh, his neighbor, uh, his neighbor's wife, the beautiful Bathsheba, bathing there, uh, and he wanted her. He wanted her more than anything else, and once that covetous desire for her had taken root, it eventually led to him breaking just about every one of the other commandments. It led to him stealing another man's wife. It led to him committing adultery with her. It led to him bearing false testimony to the people to try to cover it up. Eventually, it led to him having Uriah murdered on the battlefield, um, all because of this, this covetous desire. 
And the example of David, I think, is so important and also demonstrates why this 10th commandment is such an appropriate um, summation and summary of all the commandments because it shows us that the root cause of all transgression lies very deep uh, in the human heart and in its motivations. And, of course, Christopher Hitchens is, is in some sense right because you can never enforce this command because you can't really know what's going on in a person's heart. But what then is this command doing uh, in Israel's legislation? What's the purpose of it? Well, I think firstly it's showing us that the law is concerned not just with external actions, but also with motivations. And you know, our contemporary law also recognizes this. Uh, Grant pointed this out a few weeks back, that there's a distinction between manslaughter and murder. Uh, Motivations are important. But you know, secondly, this law is also reminding us, and and the rest of the Bible understands it this way, that law alone is never enough to bring about a just and a flourishing society. Law is not enough because of this deep disorder um, and these disordered desires in the human heart. You know, someone who understood this very clearly was the Apostle Paul. The law on its own, Paul said, only reveals the problem and in fact even heightens Uh, the problem. Uh, This is how he put it uh, in Romans chapter 7. He says, nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. He knows that experience and, and the law didn't help him. Uh, maybe that, that sort of long list of things not to covet actually just incited that desire in him. Um, do you and I know that experience of coveting this morning? Uh, how do you know uh, when you're coveting? Um, I don't know what it's like for you. I can only confess my own sins. Um, but for me, it's quite rare. Sometimes I catch myself coveting, uh, but it's actually quite rare. I don't find myself, oh, I'm, I'm coveting this person's wealth or their intelligence or or their beauty or their skill, whatever it is. But, you know, I just sort of come away from an interaction depressed, uh, dissatisfied, uh, insecure. And then later on I need to interrogate my heart and ask myself, why am I feeling this way? Uh, What is it that they have that has left me feeling so miserable? It's often those things that we attach our identity to. And I think it's important to be specific uh, to name the particular things that we might be coveting. Did you notice now how specific this command is? It names particular, particular things. Uh, many of them I think we can translate quite readily into our context today. Uh, some of them were particular to Israel, uh, living in the second millennium. But did you notice how particular it is? You shall not covet your neighbor's house. And how easy it is in a place like Stellenbosch, with so many beautiful homes, to desire it. I wish I didn't have to sit in this traffic. Uh, I wish I had a a house closer uh, to the schools. Uh, You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Uh, How easy that is in Stellenbosch as well. Uh, Many beautiful women around who might be coveted. Um, It's interesting this commandment is given from a male perspective, but of course women uh, can covet as well. If only I had that kind of husband, then then I would at last um, be happy. Some of, of, of these commandments, of course, much more specific uh, to Israel. 
I don't think many of us um, have neighbors with an ox or a donkey uh, that we might, co- uh, we might cover, but notice how concrete it is. Uh, did you notice that Moses actually lists seven things here that we might cover? Um, it's the number of completion, and he ends with this sort of comprehensive statement, you shall not covet anything uh, that belongs to your neighbor. Uh, why? Well, because I think we can cover just about anything. Sin produced in me, Paul says, every kind of coveting. I can literally cover just about anything that belongs to my neighbor. I can co- cover his job. I can p- cover his, his or her position at work. I can cover his Land Rover. I can cover his 85-inch um, big screen TV. One of my colleagues at work this week was there on take a lot and he was umming and aahing, you know, should he buy this big screen TV? And eventually he bought it and I, I said to him, well, well, what's it like? And he was like, no, it's, it's big, it's amazing. I said, how big is it? Oh, it's bigger than that whole window over there. Wow, that sounded pretty nice. Um, I must say, it sounded, it sounded great. You can cover your, um, your neighbor's holiday experiences, you know, escaping from, from the cold weather. Some parents this week were telling me how they're going to all kinds of beautiful destinations. I can cover my neighbor's intelligence or reputation or their beauty. I can cover my neighbor's financial security. Wouldn't it be wonderful not to have to worry at the end of every month about whether I'm going to have money to pay the bills or whether I'm going to have enough money to retire? And boy, when this covetous desire takes root, doesn't it rob us of, of our joy? Um, you know, someone who really understood this very well was perhaps the greatest English poet um, and playwright, William Shakespeare. Uh, in one of his uh, sonnets, he put it very well as I was thinking about um, envy, about covetous desire. This is how Shakespeare put it uh, in one of his sonnets. He said this, he said, When in disgrace with fortune and men's eyes, I all alone beweep my outcast state, and trouble deaf heaven with my bootless cries, and look upon myself and curse my fate, wishing me like to one more rich in hope, a featured like him, uh, like him with friends possessed, in other words, someone who's attractive, desiring this man's art and that man's scope with what I most enjoy, contented least. Isn't that a good description with what I most enjoy, content at least? This coveting and envy actually robs us of all of our joy. Are we beginning to see why we might still need uh, the 10th commandment today? Uh, Don't let that spirit of coveting actually take root, God is saying to his people, in your heart. It's going to rob you of your joy. It's going to create a miserable society to live in. But if that's what the commandment is prohibiting... Uh, setting our hearts on what belongs to our neighbors. Uh, what secondly and more briefly does this commandment actually affirm? Uh, what can we positively say uh, from this commandment not to covet? Well, you know, if you think about it for a moment, what are we implying about God uh, when we look at our neighbor and what our neighbor has and we say, I need that as well. I can't be happy without that. Uh, why don't I have that thing as well? Well, we're essentially saying, aren't we, that God, what you have given me is not enough. You know, God, you are not good or you are not fair. But you know, when God commands his people here, and it's a commandment not to to covet what belongs to your neighbor, do you hear what God is also saying at the same time? Is that I will provide for you. I will give you what you need. Um, I am good and I will be good to you. And so what this commandment positively affirms, and the rest of the Bible understands it this way, is the need for contentment 
for being at peace with what God has given us. Just listen to these words for a moment uh, from the writer to the Hebrews uh, in chapter 13, verse 5. This is how the writer to the Hebrews puts it. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Why? Because God has said, and here he echoes the covenant promises made through Moses, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. But you know, I think this commandment is actually calling for even more, even more than simply contentment with what God has given me. I think it's actually calling us to positively love my neighbor, so that not only do I not covet what belongs to them, but that I can actually positively celebrate the good things that God has given them, uh, good things which I don't perhaps have and which I might never have. Uh, do you remember how Jesus summarized uh, the, the whole law when one of the experts of the law came up to him and asked him that what is the greatest commandment? Uh, this is how Jesus summarized the law. He said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying that you shall not covet actually ultimately is aimed at loving my neighbor. Loving my neighbor in the same way that I love myself being able to celebrate, rejoice uh, with my neighbor at their good fortune. You know, it's, I think it's easy with Christopher Hitchens to make light of the Tenth Commandment, to say, well, you know, it's a small thing, we all do it anyway, it's natural, it's impossible to keep. But just think about it for a moment. Do you want to live in a society where you're constantly envying others and where you're surrounded by those who envy you, uh, envy you for what you have, who don't really want what's best for you, who actually see themselves as competing for the same limited resources as you. Uh, that's a miserable world to live in. But isn't Christopher Hitchens just being realistic? Isn't that just the reality of our world? Um, is it actually possible to keep this commandment uh, against coveting? Let's think finally about that. Uh, it does seem almost impossible to keep, doesn't it? To keep our hearts from that kind of desiring more. The problem is really deep. Um, as Grant had pointed out with children um, uh, in the sermon a few weeks back, um, on the sermon on telling the truth, on not lying, you don't need to teach a child to lie. They do it innately. And of course, you don't need to teach a child to, to covet either. I'm sure many of us have seen the playroom full of children with, with lots of toys to play from. And yet, the child always seems to want that one, that one toy uh, that the other child has. That one toy is, is more precious, and, and they will kick and scream until they have that one toy that the, the other child has. I dare say it's a, an image of, of, of us as we get a little bit older as well, uh, just in more sophisticated ways. Um, there's, a, there's a famous French philosopher by the name of René Girard who actually, from observations like this, he actually built up a whole theory of desire. And he said, you know, we actually learn what is valuable, and we learn what to desire by imitating others. And that other toy must be precious and valuable because I see the other child desiring it and wanting to hang on to it. Um, that, that better home must be desirable. It must be good for me because there's so many other people. That's what they're all desiring. Um, 
there's so many, our, our desires are like that. We, we imitate what others desire, what we, the way our society is shaped actually by what we collectively desire. You know, your children will desire what they see you desiring, whether that's a good education or a, a big home or a bigger paycheck or whatever it might be. It's a very profound insight. And I suppose the question then is, if our society, if we want a better society, what, what kind of desires are we going to imitate? Whose desires should we imitate? Is there anyone out there whose desire we can, can imitate? Is there anyone who's never resented or envied anyone else? Is there anyone who's always wanted what is best uh, for their neighbor, who's really loved their neighbor? You know, the answer of the Bible is that everyone has failed. Even the greatest leaders of Israel, um, Abraham and Moses and David, they all failed. Everyone fails until at last uh, we come to Jesus himself. Uh, Jesus is the only one who lived a perfectly unenvious life, a perfectly content life, a life of perfect love uh, for his neighbor. Jesus always celebrated God's grace and God's goodness to everyone. Uh, do you remember these words as he's teaching his disciples on the Sermon on the Mount? You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Uh, Jesus celebrates God's general goodness uh, to all people. And of course, Jesus didn't just teach this, he lived it. Uh, his whole life was loving his neighbor. Remember at the cross, still loving his enemies, still forgiving his enemies, wanting a change of heart. Father, forgive them. Uh, they do not know what they are doing. Is he not the perfect example to imitate, who desires something so much greater than just for himself? But you know, to just to have Jesus' example is not enough. You know, we need more to be set free from our covetous desire for more. We actually need more than that. Um, Jesus' example is actually going to crush you every time you, you see that desire arising in, every time you fail. Do you know what got Shakespeare uh, out of his depression when he found himself envying all those around him? Uh, his, all of his sonnets end with this beautiful rhyming couplet uh, at the end. And this one is the same. This is how that, that sonnet concludes. Uh, with what I most enjoy, contented least, and yet in these thoughts myself almost despising, happily I think on thee. And then my state, like to the lark at break of day arising from sullen earth, sings hymns at heaven's gate, and here's the couplet, for thy sweet love remembered such wealth brings, that then I scorn to change my state with kings. Thy sweet love remembered, it's actually remembering that he's loved that transforms him. It doesn't matter what others have and what he doesn't have. He's loved, and that is enough for him. Um, he's loved. And you know, the only way uh, that you and I will actually deal with our problem of discontent is to actually know that we're loved. You know, the only way that I know how to deal with the envy in my children when I see them discontented, maybe uh, one of my siblings got a nicer gift or they think it's their sibling got a nicer gift than them. The only way I can actually deal with that problem of envy is actually to reassure them that you are loved as well. I love you as well, and to actually demonstrate 
uh, that I love them, to reassure them that I love them. And why does the author to the Hebrews say that we can be content? Be content, he says, Hebrews 13, remember, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. It's knowing that we're loved by God, that he'll never forsake us, that will reassure us. How can we know that? Well, again, don't, we need to look to Jesus, don't we? Look at the lengths that Jesus has gone to, to love us, giving his life, giving himself for us. You know, it's, it's interesting, at the Last Supper, Jesus actually uses this language of strong desire, of, of coveting. In the Greek, it's actually very strong. Um, it's the same Greek word, epithumia, that's repeated twice. Uh, it's the word for coveting. And Jesus says to his disciples at the Last Supper, I have eagerly desired, I've covered it to, to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. What did Jesus desire? He desired to be with his disciples, to love them, to, to bring them into God's kingdom. And ultimately, he was willing to lay down his life and to suffer and die to bring that about, the kingdom of God, the, the new relationship, the new state of, of being in right relationship with God. And of course, at the cross, Jesus took on himself all the guilt and all the misery um, in the world caused by our disordered desires. He was, of course, put on the cross by envy. And he suffered there willingly uh, with us and for us. And ultimately at the cross, Jesus was forsaken so that we never have to be, so that we can be welcomed uh, into God's family, so we can know never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. That's the only way you're going to be free from, from, from that constant desire for more. What more do you need? Your love remembered such wealth brings. In those moments of, of desiring more, reflect on Jesus' love for you. What more um, could he do for you than he hasn't done already? He's given his life for you. Do you know that love this morning? Have you experienced that love? Um, if you haven't, uh, Grant or myself or, or Sean or one of the other leaders would love to talk to you. But would we be a community that knows that love of Jesus and that lives in contentment with the good things that God has given us? And would we be a community who love one another, who want to see one another flourish, who celebrate uh, with one another uh, the good things that God has given us and share uh, that love uh, with the world? Uh, would you pray with me um, and ask that that would be true of us? <clears throat> Our Father, you do know each one of our hearts this morning. You do know each one of our struggles, uh, the things that we long for, um, so easily things that we covet and then resent, Lord, when we don't have them. Lord, you know our hearts and how our coveting can, has led to um, breakdown of relationships, Father, we want to ask you again to reassure us this morning of your great love for us, that you have given us your son who suffered and died for us to bring us into your kingdom, to bring us again into right relationship with you. Father, thank you that you, the king of the universe, love 
us who are so undeserving. Thank you that you are so gracious and so good to us. Lord, as we look at your faithfulness to us this morning, we rejoice. I thank you that, Lord, you know our needs. Help us this morning to, to rest in your love for us. And as we find our rest in you, Lord, help us to reach out to others uh, with your love. Help us to show that incredible love to others. Help us to rejoice um, with others, to rejoice with those who rejoice, to, to mourn uh, with those who mourn, as your word tells us. Help us to be a community who reflects you and reflects your love to the world, who is content uh, with your great goodness. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.